Welcome back into The Mental Game. I'm your host, Brandon Seho, and this week's guest is legendary broadcaster Marty Brenneman. And in this episode, Marty opens up about his Hall of Fame career, the Reds franchise, some of his favorite stories from behind the mic in the booth, but also we talk about mental health and why he's become more comfortable being emotional as a man later in his career and later in life. All of that and much, much more coming up in the final episode of Season 1 of The Mental Game. But before we get started, let's kick things off with this week's Mental Health Tip of the Week, powered by 1 in 5, and it is all about physical health. Staying active is just one example of how physical health can positively influence mental health. Things such as eating healthy and sleeping well can also contribute to better mental health and well-being. Eating a diet containing complex carbohydrates, lean proteins, and fatty acids, and avoiding processed foods can support your mental health. Creating a good sleep routine by going to bed at a similar time each night, making sure your space is relaxing and quiet, and avoiding screen time before bed will also help maintain your mental health. And if you or someone you know needs help finding a therapist or any mental health resources, go ahead and scan the QR code in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. It'll be up this entire episode, and it'll take you directly to One in Five's homepage, where their mission is to prevent suicide by stopping the stigma and starting the conversation. Now it is time for another awesome conversation here on The Mental Game with Reds Hall of Famer, Marty Brenneman. Welcome back into the mental game. And as you can see, I'm joined by a very special guest, Hall of Fame Reds broadcaster, Marty Brenneman. We're here in your Reds baseball man cave with a, a <laughs> ton of you behind me. Yeah. Looks good. Well, there's, uh, you and I were talking before we began the podcast. Uh, this room, unlike a lot of guys or women that are memorabilia collectors and they go out and buy stuff and whether it be Bengals or Reds or a uh -huh. combination of both, most of the stuff in this room here um, is directly related to my career. Uh, going all the way back to my first radio job in Salisbury, North Carolina, when I got out of Carolina and a um, uh, thousand watt radio station. And then it progressively works around the room to uh, the end of my career. So it's, it's an impressive, I've run out of rooms, uh, <laughs> wall space. Uh, I don't have any, and I got a lot more stuff, and I have nowhere to put it. But it's it's an impressive room. There's it, no question it, about that. It's a Marty Brenneman Museum, and I'm I'm lucky to be here. We'll get into <laughs> your career, obviously, here in a sec. But the first thing I ask everyone on this podcast is, what does mental health mean to you? And everyone answers it differently, whether they use it as a tool throughout their life, something they've discovered recently. Uh, but I ask you the same thing: What does mental health mean to you? Well, I, I, I the first thing that comes to mind is uh, I feel like I'm blessed. If, and I have I have good mental health. I, I say that with a small level of reservation because I think the older you get, there are certain byproducts of age that yeah. you really have nothing to, you can have no control over. Sure. Uh, my memory's not nearly as good as it used to be. I can tell you what happened on uh, on July third, nineteen eighty three, but I can't tell you what happened yesterday. Um, but I've been blessed, uh, you know, with great mental health my entire life. And uh, my heart goes out to those who don't. Uh, and I know it has to be a real struggle uh, to get to where you want to be. But, um, you know, thank God there are a lot of people out there that uh, have the backs of those who are struggling to get things together from a mental perspective. And, and uh, if there's a heaven, on, a heaven after we pass away, those people are going to be there. We talked a little bit before we started rolling about the order that you've got 
that you felt maybe more it's mm-hmm. accepted to be emotional and show love throughout life as a man. I learned throughout my ups and downs that there is a stigma around men's mental health, maybe being emotional. What led you to those discoveries? You know, I don't, I don't know, Brandon. There, there was, there's nothing that I could put my finger on. I just think it was, um, you know, I, I thought for years, and, 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 you know, I worked with Joe Nuxall for 31 years on radio, and I used to kid with Joe because I, I'd accuse him of being able to cry at door openings and the sun coming <laughs> up, which was almost true. Yeah. And I never, I, I could never do that because I didn't, I thought it was macho not to be able to do it. And as years have gone by, um, and I have grown to be a lot like Joe was his entire life. I'm, I'm, I'm a newcomer uh, at the table in that yeah. respect. Um, and I have, and I think now it's, it's, uh, the guys who fashion themselves as being macho or guys that can cry, uh, when it is necessary. If, if an emotion is so overwhelming to them, then they shed tears. I think that's the greatest thing in the world. Uh, and there are certain things that, 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 uh, get me going talking about our my career with joe and talking about my work with the dragonfly foundation and things like that um and i'm not ashamed of that anymore um i you know i i can break down and cry at a speaking engagement if something uh when when tom browning passed away mm-hmm. it that it was devastating to me because uh he and i had become real good friends after he retired and looked at the game and the yeah. players from a different perspective. Sure. And I think from that point, he better understood what my career was about and how I approached my craft. Um, and, and so when he went, it was just, it was terrible for me. Mm-hmm. I, I had two days and I was an absolute wreck. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's therapeutic if you can cry and you can express your emotions without any reservation yeah. or uh, thinking somebody's pointing an accusatory finger at you and saying, well, you're not really, a, you know, a, you're not really a macho guy. After yeah. all. I don't worry about that stuff anymore. Well, I know you've always had a clean mouth, so I want to watch myself. And I, when I say, when I, <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of things, but that ain't one of them. <laughs> I, when, I, when I had to get my help, I went through therapy, went to the Linder Center of Hope in Mason here in Cincinnati. And one of the things they talked about is like, why do you want, not want to show emotions? I'm like, well, I've been a bitch my whole life. And they're like, well, that's that's part of the problem is is that yeah. you're saying that you're a bitch if you show emotion as a man. So hearing stuff like that, what you just said, it, it resonates with me because I think every man, and I don't want to speak for everyone, but right. they go through that point where it's rub more dirt on it and and just hide your emotions to get through this shit. I don't, I don't, that, that doesn't even, that, that right there doesn't resonate at all with me. Yeah. Because if I, if I get emotional, then, then it, 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 it's good for me to get it out rather than trying to hold it in. Um, you know, I think about when my dad passed away unexpectedly and, and I broke down and cried. That was in 1991. Mm-hmm. And then my mom passed away a few, uh, 11 years later. And, but they were the only times that I think I ever really got emotional. And like I say now, it's hardly a week that goes by that something doesn't get to me from an emotional perspective. And I, and I have no qualms or apologies to anybody when I break down and cry. And I think it's important for us to, whoever you are, enjoy the moment and then also be able to look back and celebrate the things that have happened. Your career, starting out small, getting all the way to the Baseball Hall of Fame and calling Reds games for decades. 
do you have a favorite moment that, that you can pick or, or how are you able to just look back and appreciate everything that's happened in your uh, broadcasting? Career? I think more from a general perspective, I don't think there's one thing. If I had to pick one, the most special night I've ever spent in a ballpark, it was the night I got my head shaved and the night that I <laughs> became a part of the Dragonfly Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but in terms of the game itself, I, I was blessed to be a part of so many big moments and great players and three world championship rings and, and the whole nine yards. And all those things were things that I never dreamed would ever be possible. Um, but I, I think the biggest single thing is the fact that I was blessed to be able to be in this town uh, for all of my 46 years as a big league baseball broadcaster and was able to withstand the temptation of leaving, and I had ample opportunity mm-hmm. to go all over the place, both uh, both franchises in Chicago, the Yankees in New York, the Red Sox, uh, the Dodgers, the Giants. Um, and every time, uh, if it got to that, that I had to make a decision, it was always no. I was happy here. Uh, I love this town. Um, I think we who came from outside of Cincinnati have a better perspective yeah. about how special this town is and those who have uh were born and raised here and they never lived anywhere else to draw a comparison yeah and so you know i'm i'm one of six guys that uh, broadcast big league baseball for 40 plus years and did it for only one team and i'm special i'm thrilled yeah that's that's a that's a major source of pride for me and i never even thought about it until somebody brought it up about two three years ago um but, uh, you know, it's I, I was just fortunate as far as the timing was concerned. Mm-hmm. I come in 74 and replaced Al Michaels, and then uh, they went it all in 75 and 76. I thought you were supposed to do it every year. <laughs> well, we'll get into, the, into the, the back end of your career and maybe some of the losing seasons here in a sec. But your first game for the Reds? Yep. Can you draw anything up? I mean, I've never heard of anything like that in my career. Uh, neither did Joe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because when the f- top of the first ended and Aaron had tied Ruth's record, Joe said, what the hell do you do for an encore? I said, I don't know. I have no idea. So for those watching, Hank Aaron hits 714. That's your first inning? It was a four batters into my f- official broadcast career after being in spring training, and that was day one. And uh, a guy who is one of my dearest friends on earth, Jack Billingham, was the opening day pitcher that day. And uh, he let two guys get on base and – with one out, and uh, he fell behind to Aaron three balls in one strike and, and tried to trick him, and he didn't trick him <laughs> enough. And, and Henry lined it over the left field wall for the home run that tied Roos' record. And, um, and I was aware of the fact, obviously, that he was going to have an opportunity to tie the record and possibly break the record. Mm-hmm. But – then the Braves intervened, and, and they had no intention of playing him right? Uh, because they were going to go home and, and play the home. Dodgers at Fulton County Stadium on a Friday night. And so uh, Bowie Kuhn, the commissioner, stepped in and said, no, he's got to play one game and, 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 and start another one. Now, you want to take him out early after the second time, but he's got to play two out of the three games. And so he played the entire first game. Uh, it was an extra inning game that uh, – the Reds won on a wild pitch that uh, Pete Rose scored from second base on to win the game, um, and uh, you know it, it was it was incredible. And then Aaron goes home, and on Friday night he breaks a record by hitting a home run off Al Downing, a left-hander with the Dodgers. It was something. It really was. 
And we've talked about special moments. That's starting <laughs> your career in the big leagues with something incredibly special. We have a replica of the World Series trophy in front of us. Yep. To call three World Series championships, winning championships, how do you how do you enjoy that moment, especially when it's just two, three years into your big league career with the Reds, but also, you know, I don't know, stay in the moment. Like if there's a enjoy the moment, but also stay like stay working. Like was there was there a pinch pinch yourself moment when that was happening? You know, I don't I don't really believe it was. Um, uh, you know, they win it all against the Red Sox in '75. That was my second year, and I think there was still a little bit of you know uh, the newness had not completely worn off. Yeah, and, and and the impact that I think got more meaningful. As we got further away from those two years, the impact of being around guys like Johnny Bench and Tony Perez and Joe Morgan and Pete and Concepcion and Foster and Griffey and Geronimo, I didn't, you know, that I was impressed with it. But as years went by and I started seeing outstanding baseball teams on any given year, and then I would inevitably compare that team's not as good as what I saw in 75 and 76. Um, I remember certain things about probably more the 75 World Series than I do 76 because 76 was over so quick. They swept the Yankees in four yeah. games. And then as opposed to the Red Sox, that um, I, I can remember bits and pieces of every game. The, you know, it went to seven games and, and the Reds uh, came from behind and Perez had a big home run, I think, in the sixth or seventh inning off Bill Lee and – and then they, they come back and they win the game and, and win the series uh, on the day after uh, a game that many people will tell you arguably is the greatest single baseball game ever played, and that was game six right. uh, when Fisk hit the home run in the extra innings to win the game. Um, it, it was just a whirlwind, and I, I was fortunate because back then, in fact, that was the last year that um, uh, the, the baseball – the two teams involved could name one of their broadcasters to represent them on network television. It stopped after 1975. Now I worked in the 76 World Series. I worked on CBS radio. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the 75 World Series, I worked with uh, uh, Tony Kubek and, and uh, Joe Garagiola and Kurt Gowdy. And I did the home games. And uh, then when we went to Fenway Park, uh, they used uh, the Red Sox, and I yeah. used Dick Stockton, and I think they also used Ned Martin. For a guy that's been able to have this long of a career in baseball and see three championships and do it in this place that has become your home, did it, did it make it more special? You talked about staying in one place. You're one of, I think, you say six, six mm-hmm. uh, that have been at one, one with one ball club for 40-plus years in Major League Baseball. Does that add to, I, don't, I hate asking people about, their legacy because a lot of people shy away from using that word but does it i mean does that add to it you think i think to some extent it does although it's a little known fact i mean you're talking about i'm trying to remember the other people but scully did nothing but dodger Mm -hmm. baseball first in brooklyn and then in la um denny matthews with the kansas city royals bob uecker with the milwaukee brewers uh jaime harine the latin american broadcaster Mm -hmm. with the dodgers um, and I'm trying to remember and myself, and I, I forget who the other one was, but um, 
that's not you know I don't I don't dwell on my career. I mean I I I, I think besides of, when you're in this room and there's a thousand pictures well, of you in painting. I, mean, I can't you know. <laughs> We had to, we got to do this to get all that crap out of a box and get thank God for. I'm Amanda. just giving you shit. Now. I know you are, but Amanda put all this damn stuff together and and God bless her. It for looks it. great it looks because great. a lot of the stuff in this room did had, did not see the light of day for 40 years. Wow, I've got stuff that was she had to dig out of boxes and all this stuff was framed by uh, a lady here in Cincinnati. Two women that that had framing shops and uh-huh. um, you know we it's 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 a pretty good cross section of the way my career went and and I'm just thankful that it's up here. I don't I don't relish Amanda's job when the day comes if I precede her in going to the great big baseball park in the sky. She's going to have a hell of a job on her hands getting rid of all this stuff. Well, there's a lot of big names in here, whether it be President Bush, obviously, I want to ask you about Joe Nuxall and the relationship you two had in the booth off air. When I just say Joe's name and, and mention Joe, or anyone does, what, what comes to your mind first? Well, I, to me, the first thing I, I tell people, you know, with all due respect to Pete and to Oscar, even though Oscar was raised in Indianapolis, we all know the impact he had in, in college basketball at UC and then uh, later in the NBA. But nobody, there's not a bigger sports icon in the history of this city than Joe was. Um, and, and I say that because of, the fact that he he was such a sensational human being. Uh, I never heard a fan say anything negative about him because he was always nice to people. He always had time for people to talk. And um, I learned an awful lot from him when I first came here. In fact, he took me under his wing along with Sparky and and Pete and and Bench. And um, I, I just shut up and listened and watched him operate. And uh, the longer we went, the, the closer we got, especially after I took up golf in 1995, <laughs> that really brought us close together. You've got you've got some good golf stories I've heard. Uh, yeah, well, I've, I've got some very good golf stories, and uh, so it, I was blessed to work with him. And also, the 31 years that we went we worked together equals the longest by a tandem doing big league baseball. Wow! And ironically, it equaled the 31 years that Vin Scully and Jerry Doggett worked together doing Dodger games. That's that's a great great company to be in. Yeah, not bad, man. Not bad. The uh, the years after you you win in seventy five, seventy six. Not you, the Reds. Yes. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. You win in ninety to go wire to wire. That call. I've I. You're gonna laugh at me. I wasn't alive for ninety. I've I've been maybe me being born was part of the twenty nine year Cincinnati championshipless. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A streak. We can throw it on me. That call is one of my two favorites from you. But getting getting once again when, when you go, I, I can't do math in my head, but however long it was from seventy six to ninety and fourteen get, years, getting to call that that game and just the drama that went into that series, when when he makes that catch and you get to call it again, is there that same excitement as the first time it happened? Oh, I don't think so. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I was thankful. They see by then, uh, I don't know what what the first year was, but by the time the Reds and the A's met in the World Series in 90, uh, then the club, your, your broadcast crew could do it, do the games all the way to yeah. the end on their network. And so I was thrilled for one reason, that's because Joe got a chance to experience what it was like working in a World Series because the club used me in 75 on TV 
and they used me in 76 on CBS radio, and Joe didn't get a chance to do any of those games. Wow. And so when 90 came, then he and I stuck it all the way out through the uh, league championship series against the Pirates and then against the uh, A's in the four-game series sweep. And I was happy for him because of the opportunity that he was denied in the uh, in the series in 75 and 76. And you guys working together so long, getting to experience that together, has to be something special. I mentioned uh, my favorite call. It's going to be Junior in St. Louis. Yeah, that might be mine. Did, did you have that calculated or? You mean, did I plan what I was going to say? Yeah. Oh, no. I never did that. Okay. I, I know some guys that do that. I've heard a couple of, <laughs> yeah. But I'm not good enough. I wasn't good enough to do it and not make it sound contrived. Right. There are guys that think they did it good, but you listen to it you and know you can it's... tell that's something that they planned. I, I was not good enough to do that. So my basic philosophy was to, you know, make the call. Um Talk about the things that make it special. Talk about the the secondary things like, uh, you know, and Griffey's home run that uh, came off Matt Morris. It was on Father's Day. Yep. Uh, senior was there along with his mom and uh, and his wife and, and, and kids. And um, just recount what was going on and don't feel like you've got to fill every second in broadcasting you know the event and and yeah. the aftermath of the event and and just pray to god that you don't stumble over your words and i was fortunate because that didn't happen and the other one was uh jay bruce's home run yeah. against houston that sent him into the postseason in i don't know 2010 yeah yeah um they, they're probably the two my two favorite calls because i think I don't care what walk of life you're in if if it's performance based you're going to be your own worst uh, enemy so to speak you're yeah. going to be your worst, worst critic. critic yeah and there are times when you know I've, I've walked out of a broadcast booth in cincinnati or wherever and had bad nights and knew i did and then i felt really good about both of those calls and it was kind of funny because then uh, you know three years later or whatever it was when junior was approaching 600 and i had the call there and that was before about 18 people down in Miami. <laughs> that was it that was, was so sad for me because I was at – he hit against the Marlins in Cincinnati, I think, when he's going for 500. He hit like 497 and 498 on the same day. Right. And then, like, the wind was blowing in the next day, and then they hit the road, and that's when it happened in St. Louis. And then fast forward 600s in front of, like you said, 18 people. It was At Dolphin Stadium where they didn't give a crap about, they, about anything. They, it was amazing. I mean, here's a guy that, uh, you know, 500 home run careers don't fall off trees every day. <laughs> right. Yet to the people of Miami, they didn't give a damn. They didn't show well, they up. They had bottle service and some beach beach party to go yeah, to. They I were imagine. Good. It, was, it was disappointing. But the St. Louis thing made up for it because they had a full house that day. And it was good it would happen in St. Louis because of all the fans in baseball, mm -hmm. no matter who they might support, uh, I've often maintained the best fans in baseball are in St. Louis, and and they genuinely appreciate uh, moments like that, even though it comes from a visiting player, because they gave him a standing right. ovation, and and that's that's the kind of baseball fan that you like to see, or sports fan that respect respects the fact that this guy did something big, and even though he's not wearing a Cardinal uniform, we yeah. respect the fact that he did it. It's a great baseball town. They have great fans. I'll say the same thing about. Milwaukee, it's a fun place yeah, to go. I sure did a road is. trip in 2021. You're not a Reds 
player manager, but you've been with and around the organization for a long, long time. When you're in that booth and things aren't as successful as the moments that we've talked about, there's been some lean years, and you're still Reds ambassador, so I'm not going to ask you to to bash the Reds or the front office. But when, does it? You're supposed to be non non partial and be just a broadcaster when you're in the booth. But when you have such a connection to this city and that team, is it tough to go in there night after night when there's a lot of losses? I don't know that it's tough because I love my job so much. Yeah. I, I've often maintained that if if there's a pure art form in in sports, it's doing baseball. Yeah, I and mean, I did college football. I did. Uh, uh, pro basketball. I did collegiate basketball. Did the NCAA tournament for 16 years on the CBS on the uh, 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 you know the radio network. Right. But but I um, I I I can walk. I could walk out of a booth and close the door and turn the page. Now okay. early days, uh, it was tough for me. The first year, in fact, it got so bad that. Uh, one night after, uh, I don't know, in the third month or fourth month of the season, Sparky called me, and, and I was doing a pregame show with him every day like I did a lot of managers. And he said, before we start this interview, he said, you and I need to talk. And I said, about what? He said, you can't take every loss home with you like you do. He said, you're not you're going to burn out in no time. He said, just remember, there are billions of and millions of people around the world that don't even know who the hell the Cincinnati Reds are. So for you to get all bent out of shape, you've got to be able to suffer through a loss and then wake up the next day and it's a new day dawning. And he said, that's a great thing about baseball. Unlike football, you don't have to wait seven days before right. the next game. And he, it, that was one of the defining moments in, in, uh, in, in my career. Now, you know, I would get bent out of shape during a game and, and I, <laughs> I, that's an understatement, I guess. Yeah. I, well, no, I was going to say, I've, I've heard it. And I, it's because you, you loved your job and you loved the team you, cut, you called for, too. Yeah, and, and you want them to win. And, and I think after a while you realize, this, well, this may be a year where they're not capable of winning right? Uh, or winning more than they're losing. And you gotta, you got to ride it out. And, uh, and I'll say this, if you're broadcasting for a team that's had a bad year and you're in the last month of the season, September seems like it takes 10 years to get over. The call-ups. The, it's terrible. Yeah. It just, you just please, God, get this season over with. And it used to be um, I could end a season, and I was thrilled to death that the season was over. But after a month, I'm ready to go again. Right. And I got to wait three more months, you know. As I got older, that was not the case. I, I I needed more time to regenerate my my batteries and 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 go at it again. But um, you know, for someone who likes to do play by play, there is no better job than Major League Baseball. There's nothing better than that job. And uh, and to watch great teams and great players and travel the country on somebody else's expense. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, it was just a dream come true for a guy who never ever dreamed about doing Major League Baseball. I I was involved in the old ABA days back in yeah. the '70s, and I thought that was the greatest thing on earth. And I had no designs and no aspirations of broadcasting big league baseball. And 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 thank God it happened. How hard was it? And I know this last three four year vacation is going to probably make make the answer pretty easy. But to walk away from a job where you were living a dream you didn't even know you had, and you're at the ballpark every day doing something you love. I was there for that final sign off, and it was special. It was emotional, like we talked about earlier in this podcast. 
you let the emotion show. Yeah. And it was unscripted and it was genuine. And you could tell just how much you loved your job, baseball, the Reds, and the people of Cincinnati. Yep. What went through your head when you, when you made that decision to walk away? Well, you know what? It was easy. Yeah. It was really, um, I guess I, I felt like when I, when I made the decision and I told Amanda after the 2018 season, mm-hmm. I, I told her one night at home, I said, I think next year is going to be it for me. And she couldn't believe it. And I said, no. And, and l- even up to the time that Phil Castellini and I sat down and I told him in January of 19, this is going to be my last year. I think Amanda felt that I would relent at some point and say, nah, let's you know, keep I, I'm just kidding. Yeah. And I, I never felt that way. I, I just felt like 46 years was long enough. And when he and I met, he, he posed the probability or the possibility of me staying around for five more years and, and walking away at the 50 year mark. And I said, there's not enough money <laughs> in the Castellini family to get me to work for five more years. That's not going to happen. And, and so, you know, I, I, I didn't want all the things that they did. The and Marty I, party. Come on. It I was, didn't, you I didn't had, want the big, the I big... was going to walk away. I was not going to tell a soul. And I made the mistake of telling some people and, <laughs> and I was going to do the last game of the season on a Sunday and call him on Monday morning and said, I'm, I'm out. I'm done with this. And he got upset, and I appreciated him for that because he said, "You don't, you don't owe this to yourself. You owe this to the, this ball club. You owe this to the people that have listened to you loyally for all these years. Um, you've got to let us let you know how much we appreciate what you've done." And nobody did it. Uh, you can say a lot of things about Phil Castellini that maybe he would not like. But as far as planning events are concerned, yep. there's nobody that's ever been in this town that did it better than he did. And they did a wonderful job. I, I was just I was blown away by uh, how well it was done, and it was done in such a manner that it was not an everyday affair, which would have really gotten tiresome. Right. Uh, because I really just wanted to do the series, a uh, season, I did, you know, without a lot of hoopla, I felt like the fact that I'd been here all those years was enough payback to me. Sure. And the way the people had accepted me. And, and when I replaced a guy who's one of the five greatest play-by-play guys in the history of friggin' broadcasting, right. Al Michaels. And, and so, you know, it worked out fine. The, the last day was incredible. I couldn't even talk in the post, in the post game. It was, it was tough for me to even put a sentence together. And then the deal down on the field after the game. And then, it's over. And, and uh, somebody asked me the other day, what did you do your first day after your last game? And I said, I went to Kenwood Country Club and played golf with, <laughs> uh, with my, two of my grandsons. And, and it was spectacular. And I've not looked back. Uh, I, have not, I have not had any second-guessing inwardly one time from the time that I announced that I was going to make 19 my last season, it was just time for me, for a lot of reasons, Mm -hmm. to walk away. Uh, I've told the story a million times. When Joe retired, there were things that he could not do because of his physical well-being or the lack thereof. And and I decided then, with a pact with myself, that I was going to retire whenever that might have been when Joe did. 
but I was going to retire when I had my health and I could go and do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And I've been able to do that. And, uh, if, if I pass on tonight, uh, I will have had an incredibly wonderful, um, retirement. Uh, Amanda's had a hell of a lot to do with that. God bless her because she won't let me sit on my ass and do nothing. <laughs> and, and that has kept me young. I mean, hell, I'm 80 years old. And, uh, you're cruising, golfing, you're doing everything. Yeah, we've been to Europe three times. Uh, we're going to go back uh, and, and go on a river cruise down the Danube in June. We're going to go to London and, and back to London because London's our favorite city in Europe in, in September. Uh, so it's been, it's been incredibly wonderful for me. Usually I end the podcast with, with my guest giving someone advice. I'll give you two, two options. One, advice to a, to a young broadcaster, or if you want to do the other or both, someone that is thinking about leaving their profession, retiring, going into that next phase of life, because I think a lot of people are nervous about both sides of that, so I'll let you pick either one. Or Well, I, I, I think that part of it is much more vivid in my mind, because uh, when I decided I was going to do it, and all through the course of the 19th season, I did a very unscientific took a very unscientific poll and asked people from all walks of life uh -huh. whether they were uh ceos of very successful companies were they a male were they mailmen were they factory workers whatever there was did you miss it after you got away and there were a goodly number that did but there were also more that didn't mm -hmm. and that was the one thing i was banking on and and so i would say uh have a plan whatever that plan might be, but have a plan that is going to keep you active. Yeah. Uh, my dad, my dad retired and had no plan and he was dead in three years because he sat on, sat around all day and did nothing. I, that's the quickest way to an early grave. And, and I think you need to have some type of plan and, 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 and work the plan. And if you do, uh, you're going to be, uh, hopefully as happy in, in your retirement as I've been in mine. Well, as a guy that, that grew up listening to you and Joe and, and playing wiffle ball in the backyard, <laughs> uh, I was part of that group, like I said, there on your final day and listened to you throughout your entire career. And I've got to know you since working here in TV in, in Cincinnati during that time and then now on the podcast, obviously. It's an honor. I thank you a lot for coming on, Marty. Hey, my pleasure, Brandon. You're a good man. Well, I don't know if everyone listening or watching would agree with you, but I'll take that endorsement any day. <laughs> okay, pal. Thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely, Marty. We'll see everybody back here next season on The Mental Game. And what a great conversation that was with Marty about his broadcasting career, the Cincinnati Reds, mental health, and everything he had to say. I can't thank him enough for being my final guest here on Season 1, and I can't thank all of you enough for watching, listening, commenting, tweeting, texting, whatever you've done to help me with Season 1 of The Mental Game. I can't thank all of you enough. It means the world to me. I promise we'll be back better than ever for Season 2. That'll be coming later this spring with even bigger guests and even better conversations as we try to break the stigma surrounding mental illness. Once again, Brandon Seho signing out for the final time this season on The Mental Game. <laughs>